Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome to the Rocks Across the Pond Curling Podcast, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always, our Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft in Southampton, England. Jonathan, it is not a great weekend in Southampton, I assume, since the Saints are currently losing in the semifinal of the FA Cup, and they are almost assuredly going to get relegated so what are what's the uh, mood like there in Southampton uh well yeah they're going down I think I think that yeah like the the Chelsea game last week was probably the backbreaker but uh I think they're going down they're definitely going down so what can you do about it and I think as one of the players said if they could trade being in the FA Cup semifinal for staying up they'd make that trade but they're they're basically getting nothing out of the season but uh, that's how football goes, or soccer, as you they all call that, it in America. They got that Van Dyke money, though. They do. I don't know what's going on now. Because they, they have these new Chinese owners. So I, I thought when they bought in, they were going to pour a bunch of money in. But maybe they're just uh, – sometimes new owners just loot the team and let it drop, cash out. <laughs> so maybe that's that, what's happening. Who knows? Yeah, that appears to be what's happening for, for the Saints. Yeah. So you you are back in England after a trip to Italy for I don't know some kind of junior bond spiel that you were coaching in. Tell us tell us about that. Uh, it's good. So it's the International Junior Curling Club bond spiel, and it it has junior curlers. It's kind of an odd assortment of countries, but it's Italy, Switzerland, Germany, Scotland, and England, and there's about twenty teams every year. Uh, we were playing in Pinarolo, which was the site of the 2006 Olympics. We actually weren't playing uh, in the stadium. We were right across the, the pavilion area from the stadium in a three-sheet rink they've built uh, since then. That's kind of the, the top curling spot for Italy. Um, it was good ice. Uh, we we did pretty well. In the there's it's basically divided into two pools, uh, an A pool and a B pool, and each club's allowed to enter an A team and a B team. Our A team finished third, uh, which is the best showing I think by an England team in that that competition ever. Nice. Uh, and our skip Joe Sugden won the sportsmanship award as well. So it's kind of. They won, kind of, he won the lady, the lady Bing, the curling version of the Lady Bing. The curling version of Lady Bing, and I think that if you do that and you win a prize, it kind of says, you know, like sometimes they give that to. I don't want to be like cynical, but the, you know, the also rans. Let's put it that way. But they they were kind of in, <laughs> in the running right up to the end there. So they, I mean, it kind of speaks well for kind of the spirit of curling as well coming out of our program. Our our B team did not do so well, but our skip. Uh, in his one win, threw a 30-foot run back to win the game. So that was a bit ridiculous. That there, was a, there was a guard stuck just out over the hog line, and he ran that right back onto the button and stuffed it for the win. <laughs> so um, it may not have been the right call. I, 
personally is the card. I was about to say like, if the if the guard's that high, he couldn't have just curled or curled in around it. I I mean I yeah it was it had a good swing on the ice. <laughs> I was like, why don't you just play the come around tap? But you know, being a sixteen year old, he uh, <laughs> he wanted to play the runner, and his line to me was, "Well, I made it." So <laughs> that's the joys of. Much- that's he's the watching joys too of, much Brad Jacobs. He's watching too much Brad Jacobs. I mean, they both, uh, we kind of split up the, the, the junior boys team I coached. We kind of split them up. So Felix plays lead on the junior boys team. So this is his first chance to skip. And so maybe he was kind of glad to be freed from the, the burden of throwing up guards all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought he'd throw some <laughs> run back. So it was, it was a, overall, it was a good weekend. Um, yeah. And uh, Italy is always a nice place to visit. This is kind of up in the mountains area, so you're kind of looking at the Alps. Good setting there. So yeah, good times for sure. And so is, you, cur- is curling season is curling season done there in Europe as well as it's it's wrapping up here as well? Is it done there too? So this week I've ac- I'm actually going to be living at the curling rink. I, I'm going to be there for no, I'll be there. Let's see. Mo- I'm going to be there Monday, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we've got. Monday night, I've got my last junior coaching session. I'm going to – then Tuesday night um, is the league finals for the weeknight league. So we're, we've actually clinched, uh, I guess, two berths. And I'm not sure, quite sure what's going to happen. So we own two of the four berths. <laughs> <laughs> how is that possible? So there's four leagues. I don't quite understand how it's all set up. It's, it's a kind of a comp- – they basically they do it the English style, which is fortnightly. The English are very fond of the fortnight as with Wimbledon. So basically what that means is we don't play a league every Tuesday night. We play it every other Tuesday night. And then every other Tuesday night, there's another league. So, and there was one league before, one pair of leagues before Christmas, one pair of leagues after Christmas. And we won one league before Christmas and one after. So so apparently the finals are on Tuesday and that's, that's to be sorted out. But in theory, at least we should be playing for something think if you won two out of the four berths so we'll see how that goes and then next weekend friday night through sunday is the junior play down so the the junior boys team i coach are entered in that there's two other teams entered and the winner of that will represent england uh in the world junior b's which will be back in finland next january so it's all wrapping up over here but uh still got a lot of stuff to to get through this week curling wise and you, you are you your your season's just starting, right? In some weird yeah, way. Yeah, we're I mean we're an arena club, which is I mean the term arena arena ice is a little different in America and Canada. So here in the U.S., we're an arena club, so we curl on hockey ice and we curl whenever we can get ice uh, from the rink. So our season got underway on Thursday. I was not there. I was at a bonspiel in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, but my team won without me there, so uh, so that was that was good news because I went zero and three at the bond spiel. But yeah, our uh, the curling club of Virginia season got underway this week. It's going to run for ten weeks. Um, I'm going to miss the first three games, so hopefully hopefully the the guys I drafted um, do well in my absence. Uh, but they're off to a one and zero start, so that's good. That's good. Yeah. So and so, when how long does that league run until? Uh, ten weeks. So it'll be done sometime in June. And then, do you guys do another summer league one, or is that the, the prime season up until June? 
they're looking at the, they looked at adding another league on Saturdays to kind of bring in some of the beginners. Uh, so we've got three three beginners leagues. One just wrapped up. One is just getting started, and then another one's going to run after it. And then they're looking at doing another league that would mix beginners who either tried to get in one of those and couldn't or just want to keep playing as well as some of us who have been some of us veteran members uh getting into that league as well so it'll be an we could wind up curling until july so it all (laughs) it's kind of crazy but yeah it'll be it'll be 90 degrees outside and we'll be curling so that might be that might be interesting yeah that'll be fun yeah yeah so our yeah our season just started uh as everywhere else in the world it's uh it's wrapping up yeah well i guess new zealand is because they've got one indoor oh yeah they're well well they're southern hemisphere so it's yeah yeah Yeah, so you in new zealand can do like the the summer slam or summer there you go yeah (laughs) so uh and so how you're you're spewing in carolina so how'd that go what was the club like there how'd the weekend go so it's Triangle Curling Club. It's really, it's uh, I've been there three times now. Uh, it's a really nice facility. Ice was great. Uh, they've got a nice warm room with a big bar and a huge selection of beers for for a curling club. A very large selection of beers. So that was great. Uh, good food. Um, you know, it's a lot of you know those things are always fun. You know, I don't think there's only. I don't think I've ever maybe just once had a bad time at a bond spiel, but no, this was a great time, even though we went 0 3. So, was it like food all weekend, kind of all you could eat pretty much open? And the, was the bar open? You had to pay at the bar. It was cash bar, and that is because I think that's because of North Carolina's alcohol laws, yeah. I think is why we had to have cash bar, but it was still pretty cheap. So, no complaints, uh, no complaints there. But yeah, they, they fed us. Um, good bar, good ice. Uh, one of the sheets we played on, it was curling six feet, which was amazing. Um, but we, our, our team went 0-3, and, and the other CCVA team also went 0-3. So you had a combined 0-6 showing from our from oh, our club at, yeah. at that bond spiel. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough sometimes for arena clubs to play uh, like club ice or dedicated ice and, and play against teams that get to play on that ice all the time. Uh, but sometimes played, when, when those those club teams end up playing on a arena ice or first field there, they kind of they kind of tend to struggle under those conditions. So yeah, we we played two two triangle teams. Our first two games were against teams from Triangle Curling Club and the host club, and then our third game was against Palmetto Curling Club, which is another uh, arena team uh, that's located in Greenville, uh, South Carolina. So that was so even against even against the one arena team that we played we we came out with the L. Yeah, that's that's rough. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh what do we want to be talking the, about? The the only the only thing that stunk was because we went 0 and 3, we were and we had the early draw. We like it's, it's I think it's an East Coast thing. They start these bond spiels on Thursday. So we had a, our first game was 6:30 p.m. on Thursday. And we were done and out by 10 a.m. on Saturday. Yeah. So I got home. So I got home last night. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of too bad. I guess it's because it's also a three sheeter, so they probably don't have. Uh... What's a four sheeter? Oh, is it a four sheeter? Yeah. Oh, they could There's totally 30... do like a all day Friday thing then. Yeah, 32, uh, 32 teams, four sheets. 
Yeah, they could totally have done that. They they just didn't play Friday daytime, or did they? Or they just gave you um, an accelerated draw. After, well, they had they had extended time between draws. Like they did to their credit, they focused a lot on ice prep, uh, especially between draws. Uh, more good. so, more so than a lot of the arena. You know, you and I have gone to a lot of arena spiels in the mid in the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, so because the ice is going to be bad regardless of what they do to it, they, you know, they don't spend a whole lot of time between draws. Uh, this one, they spent a lot of time between draws, making sure the ice was good to go. Yeah. Did you have to play to the ballot, or did you have like you could play the full game without pressure? Uh, we never. Yeah, you played to the well, the the clock basically. Um, okay. But yeah, we never finished. We never played an eighth end. We, uh, yeah, we shook like, after we we, we. Well, no, we shook after six and one, and then our we our team was kind of slow. Uh, so we we never played more than seven. Oh, okay. <clears throat> All right. So uh, we're going to talk about the players' championship now from last week, or yeah, big news here in the U.S. Uh, Jamie Sinclair became the first U.S.-based team to win a Grand Slam, and she snapped Jennifer Jones's big winning streak uh, in the final of the players' championship. Basically, stole their way to a win, stole the first uh, four points of the game, and then. Uh, kind of coasted the last four ends to become the first U.S. team to catch, capture a slam, which uh, to me is, you know, maybe not on the same level as winning the Olympic gold, but it's a pretty big deal to me. Of course, it did not receive any uh, mainstream media coverage here in the U.S., but yeah, big win for the U.S. Yeah, no, it's, it's really big. So I think what's interesting, not just um, Sinclair, but you also had a Korean team winning this year. You had Muat mm -hmm. winning this year. I think like, if you look at the game globally, I if I Peter I, Peter De Cruz won a slam. Oh yeah, Peter De Cruz, right? And if you think back, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Adine was the first non-Canadian team to win a slam. That was only like two three years ago, right? I'd uh, I'd have to look that up. But it's pretty recent. And now I, th I think this year in the slams, you've had like significant breakthroughs kind of globally in terms of international teams now, now winning at this level. Whereas uh, I think even if you go back a quad, right, like top international teams would come and they'd offer and, or, or yeah. maybe they win one or two games. Right. And uh, if you were looking for another sign that the game's going global, that not just the U.S., but also like a lot of the European teams and Asian teams are starting to kind of, if they haven't caught up, they, they're almost there. Uh, certainly kind of the slam performances this year were pretty, uh, pretty global in their format. So that's and pretty that, that, And that's probably one of the reasons, you know, the slams are probably one of the reasons that Canada didn't do as well uh, this time at the Olympics is you have these teams who are getting – you know, the ability to play on that swingy arena ice that you see at the Olympics, and you have these international teams coming to Canada and getting to play in these big tournaments on ice conditions uh, with championship rocks that they're going to see at that level. So it's no longer something that just the Canadian teams are being exposed to on a regular basis. Yeah, so that's I think that's kind of interesting. So it's definitely there's a big shift going on at the high-performance level of the game right now, right? That uh, certainly the top couple of teams on the women's side from the u.s are kind of at that level we certainly got schuster mm -hmm. maybe mccormick 
maybe Persinger just kind of a step back, but there's definitely two to three teams on both the men's and women's sides from the U.S. kind of, if not at slam level, just kind of just on the bubble of being kind of regular slam teams. Then yeah. uh, you've also got like a whole bunch of international teams now kind of punching through, like Hasselberg, the Swiss teams, uh, obviously Adin kind of winning everything. So Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Roth uh, also made the quarterfinals. So two of the eight teams in the quarterfinals uh, on the women's side of the players were U.S. teams. And then you have – I don't have the full playoff list uh, here right in front of me. But, uh, yeah, for a quarter of the playoff teams to be uh, to be U.S. teams and then the U.S. to win a slam, um, you know, speaks to, speaks to how the high-performance program has – has worked really yeah well it's well it's that's obviously going to be kind of a source of debate right (laughs) did it work or did it i mean and so i think that there's kind of two parts to it i think one is did the program formed teams work that's kind of debatable right because obviously schuster's the the one who kind of busted that theory pretty early but i think talking to like talking to Derek brown back this would have been like five, six years ago. His biggest concern, to be quite honest, was that U.S. teams weren't going out and playing high-level competition. And, and to be quite frank, that was true when, when I was at St. Paul in the early 2000s. There were, you know, a few a few kind of the top teams might go up and play a Bon Spiel in Winnipeg or something, but mm-hmm. U.S. curling back in the 2000s was very kind of into you play the bond spiels in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and it's really only been over the last decade, I'd say, that you've seen kind of serious commitment from the competitive U.S. teams to go and play bond spiels in Canada, bond spiels in Europe, really compete for order of merit points, really kind of climb up the the world curling tour rankings, and um, you know. I think, I think that's kind of definitely starting to pay off. And the, the next generation coming up, like the, the Dropkins and the, the Andersons and, and those ones that are kind of just out of juniors, I think for them that's just normal and they see that's what you got to do. And so I think long term you're going to start to see, you know, two, three, four perhaps teams on each on kind of each gender uh, kind of regularly in the top 20s, uh, top 20s maybe of the World Curling Tour Order of Merit standings. And you have to do that. You have to push the junior teams, I think, to also go and play in these big tournaments. Because I guess now there's a junior slam series, um, so it's important to get the, the the junior teams out there playing on this type of ice in those big international competitions. As much experience as you can get them, um, the better for the future of curling in the U.S. and in, but basically the non-Canadian countries, because Canada has been doing this for for so long that the rest of the world is now catching up to it. Yeah, they're still catching up. I mean, Canada still's got a still has a pretty big advantage in the sense that you don't have to travel that far. If you're if you if you're like say a top junior team in Canada, you can probably play elite level junior competition without ever leaving your province until you go to nationals, yeah. right? I, and that's just not the case for certainly even in the U.S., right? Maybe with the exception of Minnesota, but you know top u.s junior teams probably got to travel to canada and in europe you gotta you gotta fly all over the place in the european junior curling tour if you want to you want to get kind of that top tier uh junior curling competition too so um i, th- I mean i th- obviously 
other countries are catching up, but Canada still is because of the, the depth of curling facilities and, and curling competitions still always going to still going to have a pretty big kind of advantage until you until the U.S. kind of gets more facilities built and uh, perhaps other countries kind of come on board with more curling facilities, too. One of the things I like is the the last really big competitive curling competition of the season coming up this week the champions cup uh they're include they include the two world junior winners which this year just happened to be canadian so you'll see tyler tarting and caitlin jones playing in a slam uh against these you know against the basically the pro teams uh so that's kind of cool and that's good experience for them yeah no it's it this so this, this event's kind of interesting format right you've got to win an event to get mm-hmm. to it and you're, I, they've always held bursts for the, ju- the World Junior winners, which I think is great. Um, but then you've got to, if you're on the adult side of things, it's basically they fill it by like the strength of field, basically working back. Yep. So US has two. So Sinclair, I guess, got in from her from winning her slam. And what, what did Persinger win to get in? Was that a, that must have been like a, a bronze they hold, in the season? No, they hold the US champ. Yeah, the US champions get births as well ah, okay so is it is that based off strength of field or is it just a way to get th- u.s participation so you i think it's a way to get u.s participation it, it's held specifically for winners of you know the u.s championship the european winner mm-hmm. and i think those like the swiss uh the tournament in basel and the the masters tournaments from europe i think they they hold spots for those the winner of those events yeah um, but then if you get duplicate winners that's when they start going to strength of field uh, in basically filling the field, uh, unfortunately, so Schuster was eventually was initially going to be in the tournament as the winner of the Olympics. However, I guess he's going to the White House this weekend along with other uh, U.S. gold medalists. I think that's what I heard the reasoning is behind ah, okay. them not being at the Champions Cup. Uh, otherwise, you were going to have two two U.S. men's teams in the field, but it'll just be. Sinclair on the women's side, and who had a spot before winning the players, uh, and pers- Team Persinger on the men's side, representing the U.S. Okay, so that's not bad. Uh, and then, so what else we got going on? So we've got the World Junior winners. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got it's the last it's the last go round for a lot of teams. Yeah. Uh, so the you know the Cooey team, which just won the players. Uh, the McEwen team, which won the Elite Ten, so yeah, these teams that these teams announced they were going to break up and then wound up winning winning Slam. So good for them. Uh, one team that is staying together that we got to see for the first time since the Olympics at the Players was Rachel Homan's team, and they unfortunately went 0 and 5 at the Players. Um, I don't know what's going on there. I mean, they could it could just be they're ready to play golf. Um, could but be that done. Team is, that, yeah. yeah, that team <laughs> that, is. Yeah, that team's staying together, though. Yeah, they're, they're not staying together. I guess the issues, but then they didn't they flip flop uh, Lisa Weagle and uh, Joanne Courtney at the yeah players. for one for one or two games. I think I don't think it was permanent. I think it might have just been one game, and then they went back. Yeah, so I'm I'm wondering if they're kind of either. I mean, even if they're staying together, they might be looking at ways to tweak the team, and that can. Uh, yeah. That can sometimes throw you off, or it could be they got nothing to play for, right? Like they they, they obviously yeah. stake the entire quad on meddling or winning the gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, kinda that's kind of what 
that's kind of what John Schuster did. They had uh, Tyler George skipping and throwing forth rocks. Um, And I never really saw an answer. Like, my first thought was I saw, you know, after the embarrassment that was their opening opening day first pitch at the Twins game, uh, (laughs) Tyler George said something along the lines of, my shoulder gave out while he was throwing the pitch, and that's why it went sailed to the backstop. Uh, So my first thinking was, oh, maybe he messed up his shoulder, and that's why he's skipping and throwing fourth. But if you think about it, why would he be throwing? He would still be throwing third, even though he's holding the broom. So they had John out there sweeping and throwing third. I don't know. I, I never saw an official reason why, but uh, they wound up two and three and lost in a tiebreaker. So Tyler did pretty well. They beat uh, they beat Carruthers and, and Botcher. Yeah. So uh, it's I mean it's it's kind of interesting question, right? So you've got these two late season slam events, uh, like the Players Championship, and now the and Champions it's really Cup. different in an Olympic year. Yeah, Olympic year it's really different. It, it kind of is, but it's a bit like, like for me, it's like, what are these events doing? Like, part of me is that the Players' Championship's been going on in some form for a generation now. So mm-hmm. I think it kind of has always been the traditional end-of-year kind of cash spiel event. And when it's held is kind of, it's either been held right before or right after the Men's World Curling Championship and sometime in April. But the Champions' Cups kind of, it feels a bit... Like, even the Players' Championship, to me now, feels a bit anticlimactic, especially after an Olympics and a World Championship. Um, the Champions' Cup almost feels like it's so late. It's a bit like either the Pro Bowl in you know NFL football or uh, the FedEx Cup in golf, where it's kind of this event that is supposed to be important, but I, I think neither the fans nor the players really think it's important, right? And I'm wondering if that's kind of what's happened to these late-season slams, um, and in some sense, it's not really all that different from, say, club or competitive level, where by April, most of the events are kind of, let's just wrap up the season. So it's either a club yeah. championship thing, or if you're spieling, it's basically one last weekend party. And, you know, most teams just go and, go and get drunk and <laughs> have a bit of fun. Hey. So maybe the slam teams are doing that, too. So, uh, which is, I mean, totally their prerogative, but from a... From a TV event perspective, or kind of a growing the game perspective, I'm not sure if that's the best best way to run those events, right? Like if the players yeah. are kind of nailing it in, and they kind of almost seem like baseball teams playing out the string in September when they know they've got nothing left to play for. Um, yeah, it probably is a lot like the Pro Bowl, and if you're going to – I don't know about the Fed, – because the FedEx Cup in golf, you're still playing for a championship, and I think some of those guys are like fighting for their tour card, right? Or is that no, – maybe – yeah. There's a bit of that, but isn't it? I mean, it's also a, it's also a lot of money in that in on the on those last FedEx Cup uh, tournaments. For a curler, those those two events also have pretty good paydays. Yeah, so so it kind of makes you wonder if, if they're like good paydays. Why don't they? Why are these teams kind of flip flopping? Right, like changing their players around, messing around with lineups. Uh, it just kind of seems it just kind of seems a bit odd to me. I, I think I, I think from a fan perspective. Most people turn out, tune out after the World Curling Championship, so maybe the Slams need to rethink their schedule. Because to be to be honest, from my mind, what's missing right now is more big events earlier in the season, right? And, there, yeah. and actually, the other kind of dead zone is when playdowns are going on, like January, February time prior to prior to the Scotties. But um, 
it's kind of a weird curling has a almost like a, a weird redefined calendar at the moment it's kind of you know at least for the tv level stuff yeah you don't see a whole lot in september october november i guess yeah, there's, there's a make, lot do of you make like, the Do you make the Champions Cup the first event of the next season? I think they, they kind of changed it next year. The Elite 10 is going to be the first one, and they're going to have – it's going to be men's and women's, and whereas previously it was just a men's division. But, yeah, why not make the Champions Cup your first event next year? Yeah, something like that. So you, you kind of got to – it's almost like the – you know, some of these, like, early season events in other sports where, like, how you did the year before decide determines if you got a birth in this or not, right? So Yeah, those uh, – the supporter shield matches that you see in uh, in association football where it's the, you know, the cup winner and the league winner playing each other for, you know, a meaningless um, – basically meaningless trophy at the to start the season. Yeah, and so this could be yeah the, these teams that win a berth, and if they break up, they give up that berth, and you kind of fill up going down the list, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, yeah. These I last two events have also been weird because of that. Because it's the end of the quad, you get a lot of teams that are that have split up and are really playing out the string because they're you know, I see pictures posted on Twitter of some of the new teams are having their photo day, had their photo day at the players' championship where they get together take photos in the new jackets and then go back to their other teams to keep <laughs> playing in the players yeah so i mean i mean it's that's kind of interesting too what the other thing that's interesting is that holman's team sticking together and they seem to be not playing well at all whereas cooey and McEwen breaking up and for whatever reason the weight of the world's off their shoulders almost playing carefree and, yeah. and both of them winning a slam and and uh putting in pretty good performances so that's kind of the other interesting kind of mental aspect there i'd say i'm also interested to see how the schedule shakes out next year now that they have this world cup that the wcf is putting together i'm also interested to see what on earth that format's going to look like they've said it's going to be eight doubles eight women's teams eight men's teams in it sounds like they're all going to be from different countries but they haven't really they haven't really given us many details other than one's going to be in Europe, one's going to be in North America, and two are going to be in China. Yeah, so I, the, the one thing, I, I think the final's going to be in China, and part of that is that the sponsorship for this event comes largely from China. And uh, yeah. when I was coaching the World Bees, one of the WCF officials said to me, if China had their way, every single WCF event would be in China all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. And so, to me, that's kind of exciting because the, the goal, someone was telling me the goal is actually to start building, like, uh, more clubs there. Like, basically build yeah. some grassroots, like, actual clubs for kind of, you know, just curler curlers, not just the high-performance stuff they have going right now. So, Yeah, there was one interview during the men's championships that I heard, and they threw out some ridiculous number that of curling clubs that are going to be built in China. Yeah, so if I mean if it takes off there and you get a serious kind of post Schuster Gold bump in terms of facilities going up in the U.S., then mm-hmm. then uh, you know then you've got kind of two major markets. Right? But, but you basically have to, you have curling taking off in the two largest economies in the world is one way of thinking about it, right? Like China and the U.S. being the two biggest yeah. economies. So uh, that certainly might kind of lead to a bit of growth there. Two. Yeah, I don't really know what the format format's going to be. I guess they've kind of teased it a bit in terms of number of teams. It seems like 
the first three events somehow qualify teams for the final. And uh, yeah. it, it, it kind of sounds like it's national-based teams, so countries get slots, yeah. not, it's not based off WCT. Yeah, that's um, what it seems like they're, they're proposing. I, what, I, what I wish they would do would be like a curling version of the Davis Cup, uh, which is the tennis event where it's a tournament and a few weekends – uh, spread throughout the year you have a you know a Davis Cup weekend where uh, you have your Davis Cup tie where the U.S. is playing uh, let's say Spain uh, the U.S. captain selects his team of available players for that weekend the Spanish captain selects his uh, his players and then they play um, and it's you know you do doubles doubles and singles and it, I think it's either best of seven or best of five um what I think would be cool is you get two men's teams, two women's teams, and then you're allowed to have a two double specialists uh, selected for your team. Uh, and you do best of five. You do three three doubles games, and the winner of that little mini best of three gets the doubles point, which is kind of how they do college tennis. Okay. So you have the dub the doubles point and then your singles game. So two men, two women, and then your doubles point. Um, and your doubles uh, your doubles games can be selected from any one of the men's and women's teams or your doubles specialists. That'd be a good um, format. You should yeah. uh, you should send Kate Kathness an email. <laughs> I mean, I, I think wait till I, wait, right? wait till I've had a few more, and then I'll fire off an email <laughs> later tonight. <laughs> no, I mean, I I think it's an interesting puzzle, right? In terms, if you're thinking about for TV, I, mean, I think we said this before: is what gets people to root for a team. And I think the reason the Briar is still the Briar in Canadian curling, and and the Slams don't tend to do as well, certainly not in terms of paid attendance, is because People like to root for a place, either their town yeah. in sport, their college, their country. Uh, they don't necessarily like to root for particular teams, right? And especially yeah. as the teams move around and break up, there's even less kind of, I think, fan affinity. And people may have their favorite curler or whatever, but um, I think your format might be kind of a good way to grow um, kind of national rooting interest. Because outside yeah. of the World Championships, there's not much – or the Olympics, obviously, there's not much country-based um, kind of fan, uh, you know, curling events. Let's put it that way. In the like the Davis Cup in the first round, when the when uh, the U.S. is playing, let's say Kazakhstan in Davis Cup tennis, um, you know, the player, you know, you're going to select middle of the road U.S. players or lower level U.S. players uh, for that Davis cup tie. But when the U S advances and they get to the bigger matches, uh, say against like a Spain or an England, the bigger name, um, players will go in and play in those Davis cup ties. So it's only, it could almost be the same in curling. Plus by limiting it to two men's teams, two women's teams, you're kind of leveling the playing field. Like Canada would obviously destroy any other country. If you made it the best seven teams, uh, from each country, um, but if you're limiting it to two, you know, the U.S. and Scotland and Switzerland have a chance of winning that against Canada. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, if you, if you had uh, – if Scotland threw up Mullet and Smith and Muirhead and then whatever their mixed doubles teams are, yeah, um, yeah I think that, that would uh, – I, th I think Scotland kind of lacks a serious kind of 
second ranked women's team at the moment but they could kind of stick with any of the top 10 women's teams in Canada but you know you, you've got a chance there to grab two games and then maybe the mixed doubles because that's such a gong show format anyway <laughs> uh you know yeah there's definitely a chance there for a small level upset and a bit, a bit more competitive perhaps and, and probably a bit more interesting than the the continental cup to be honest which seem, which to uh, me it's fun yeah, but it kind of would be a lot more a interesting than the continental yeah. cup yeah, that, that one's kind of, there's way too much stuff going on. It gets too confusing, and uh, it definitely builds to a final. But, uh, yeah, basically four four regular games and three mixed doubles games spread, spaced in between might uh, might do the trick. Yeah, yeah go out. Yeah, let, uh, let Scotland host one, you know, have, you know, the U.S. hosts, you know, whoever, you know, who would the, you know, Sweden or Switzerland and, you know, do it bracket style. You know, if if you draw them, the U.S. has to go to China, that kind of thing. I think it would be, you know, I don't know what I don't know what the TV coverage would wind up looking like or what the TV numbers would would look like for NBC Sports. But, you know, it's a chance to put it's a chance to put a flag on somebody. Um, and I think that that draws more viewers. um than just having you know Team Cooey against Team McEwen. Um, I mean, look at the Ryder Cup in golf. Uh, you get big TV numbers for that because it's Europe versus the U.S. Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's the that's the key. Maybe maybe even like the curling net in America format could be reworked that way or something. It's just that'd uh, be fun too. Yeah, I I think that yeah, people you put a flag on someone, the fans automatically know who to root for, and uh, it's probably <laughs> a lot easier than just rando curling team from uh you know north battleford or whatever right <laughs> playing, <in a, laughs> playing in a slam final yeah so so another issue that's came up is right after or right as adine was winning the world curling championship it, it came out that the swedish olympic association is cutting the funding for adine and i assume also hasselberg right so well i think it was they were cutting funding for Everyone in the entire like Olympic system, you mean? like the entire like, I, from my understanding of the story that Devin Haru from CBC wrote was it's they're basically their Olympic association is out of money. Yeah, and that, that's I think that's kind of going all, uh, kind of on all over the place. British curling, it's a slightly different. So British, so British Olympic funding is tied to lottery funding here so you're not going to run out of lottery money because people are always going to play the lottery so but their system is based on metal performances so if a national sport doesn't perform its funding gets slashed so this leads to some very weird effects in kind of british sport and so one of them is that skeleton for whatever reason because britain's done well in skeleton for the last like uh 15 20 years there's all, an insane amount of money thrown at 15 to 20 skeleton racers. And they all mm -hmm. go to Switzerland or Germany and do skeleton full time. And, you know, there's no skeleton track in England. <laughs> I've You're never kidding. met a skeleton doer. But there's, you know, millions upon millions of pounds thrown into skeleton. And, and curling's kind of has historically done well because of the kind of historic track record. But because Britain didn't meddle in any of didn't missed out on one event didn't medal in the other two at the olympics there's an open question about what's going to happen with the funding there too and that there's a funding review going on so um i assume that muet doing well at worlds kind of helps a bit because they also track performance in other other events mm -hmm. but 
Um, it does kind of raise an interesting question about are we seeing what I call a high-performance curling bubble in the sense that, yes, all these countries have performed really well and caught up, but part of it, to be frank, is that these Olympic associations just come and throw money at the problem, right? So in Britain, over the last two quads, the top three to four uh, competitive teams of each gender get fully funded, get paid on a salary, like all their curling expenses are covered. And so um, they're doing really well climbing up the world rankings. But one of the interesting side effects is a complete implosion of the competitive game at the, the club level. So um, people like people who are former world champions like Ewan McDonald, uh, a guy who represented Scotland uh, a few years ago in the Euros, David Edwards, they actually sat out the Scottish Championship this year. They only had nine teams sign up for the Scottish Championship to go to the Worlds, nine total, right? If you go back a generation ago, you'd have over 100 teams signing up. So that's like a massive implosion there. And there are, when I play spiels up in Scotland, there's a lot of competitive curlers up there who say there's no point in me signing up for the Scottish Championship uh, you know, if I'm going to play against someone who's basically got a full-time job curling, they're paid to throw rocks all day, get full coaching, and I've got to do this in between a job, I'm not even going to bother signing up and taking the week off work to play in the Scottish Championship. And so, and if you see that, plus Nadine's funding perhaps being pulled right after a silver, a gold, a world championship, right? <laughs> it's like... Well, the the, the British curling questions that you're raising sound similar to the questions we asked here in America after Sochi, right? Yeah. Because it was, how do we rework our high-performance program to win medals, and is the way that we're going to rework it, is it going to kill club curling? Well, then we wound up stumbling into this gold medal thanks to john schuster and in company yeah. uh and that and all of a sudden everyone is coming out to try curling uh even in places like richmond virginia um so if you're if you're gonna spend the money to fund those high performance programs you got to come away with a gold although i don't know what what did the silver medal or the world championship do for curling in sweden i think i saw an interview with a dean where he said that sweden's or uh curling just still isn't that popular in the country even though you know they're 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 producing results well sweden's weird i mean sweden has somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 rinks for a country of you know five six million that's it's probably the second uh kind of like curling rinks per capita country in the world for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing is that Sweden's got a pretty different, um, like just welfare state government model compared to the U.S. or even Canada, right? So there's a lot more money in the Scandinavian countries for grassroots and youth sport. Even and so, uh, one thing that's interesting there is that I don't think curling is going to implode in Sweden. Like there's a there's a pretty rich kind of curling infrastructure. But what's interesting is in Scotland, there's a real case to be made that the home of the game that that curling's actually imploding, that they're losing ranks, um, the numbers of people competing is down, the number of people in juniors is actually down because mm. they're already pulling people out at 17, 18 into the high performance program and the other ones who don't get picked just kind of drop out and go do something else. So it's, it's, a, bit of a, it's a bit of a puzzle, right? Because the question is who pays for a curling team? 
right? That someone like a Dean was saying is about 150,000, I'm not sure if it was euros or, or dollars, but somewhere in that area in the article I read, um, that was their, that was basically to fund the team's costs for the year. Basically mm -hmm. they go fly, fly back and fly around the world, enter all these bond spiels, cover your hotel costs, entry fees, all the support stuff. And that's a pretty big ticket, right? Cause sure, top, top teams, make that on average with their winnings over the course of the year. If you have a really good year, maybe you punch through to 200,000. But yeah. if your outlays are 150,000 and you're the best you could hope for is 200,000, that means, you know, divide up by four people, you're, you're not making that much. So, so you've got to have some kind of sponsorship in place. In, in Canada, because the players are on TV and there's some advertising and there's some other, it's like a known thing, the top 10 teams can, can make a kind of a good go at it. But internationally, if, a, if an Olympic body is not going to help underwrite some of those costs, then, um, th then it's not really clear who's paying for, for the curling at that level. So and what, what I mean is, is there a bubble going on? Is it just the case that the last couple of Olympic cycles, countries thought this was an easy way to poach a medal since Canada was the only game in town, and now countries are realizing the costs are escalating? And some countries are just going to pull back. And then what happens then? So I, th I think the bubble you're talking about is we have reached, we have reached the cap that you're going to be able to fund teams based on, based on there being TV revenue from Canada. Yeah. Because uh, that's you know that's what's funding the you know, the prize pools for the slams, um, you know, the, it, it's, it's what's pushing it right now is games on TSN and Sportsnet, right? Yeah. So the only way you grow that is by bringing in more TV revenue by growing the sport in the U.S. and China, right? Because you look at, you look at a, an English football match like today, watching Southampton and Chelsea in the FA Cup. You know, on the on the touchline, they've got the, the the sponsorship panel, and a lot of times you'll see ads in Chinese. Yeah. Um, and it's because English football does numbers in China. So the way you have to you have to bring if you can bring in new TV revenue from the U.S. and from China, then I think you can up um, up that total pool. And I think that, that that's what would basically extend the bubble that you're talking about, is you have to hope to bring in new revenue from new markets, because I think we've reached the maximum amount that you're going to get out of Europe and Canada. Yeah, so it's, it's – yeah, exactly. So, and it's not clear if you're going to get regular TV of curling outside the Olympics, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. not – like, so, like you said, Sinclair's winning a slam basically had no – impact in u.s sports media outside the curling the curling yeah world, i'd say right? yeah if you're outside of the curling world you have no idea that that happened yeah and that's actually a, i'd say after winning an olympic gold medal that's the second you know best or i guess a world championship that's the that's the next best thing you could do right for a yeah. u.s team and that made like no i think impact. it's a huge i think it's a huge accomplishment um and a huge step for that that this sport is growing in the U.S. to have someone win a slam, particularly the players. Yeah, exactly. I got I like one of the major slams, not just a slam, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and so it's a question: Is there going to be 
more TV outside of the Olympics, or is it just a once every uh, kind of four years thing? I saw, I saw an interview yeah. with Brian Boitano who said the worst thing that ever happened to figure skating was the Tanya Harding scandal because that spiked their that spiked the TV viewership numbers for the '94 Olympics. They signed a six-year contract, mm-hmm. and then in 2000 or 2002, the the Olympic numbers were terrible, and. <laughs> And then figure skating had like a $100 million NBC contract for a decade and tons of money going in. And then nobody wanted to turn pro anymore. And then once the money kind of dropped away, there wasn't really like all the kind of other ice skaters couldn't punch through. And so actually ice skating at kind of a competitive level had a similar implosion. And so you kind of wonder what happens if like a Dean basically says, well, if I'm not going to be funded to fly around the world, I've already won everything I can. Maybe I just hang it up or take a step back for a few years. And, and mm-hmm. what happens in Scotland if some of these other teams don't get funded and they've got to go find jobs, right? What happens then if you've kind of shrunk your competitive pool down to nine teams and a few of them basically that were competitive curlers being fully funded can't make money doing that anymore. They've got to go off and get a day job. <laughs> and does that, yeah. then impl- does that then kind of actually lead to a weird clawback, not just in number of teams, but also also in quality. So it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting moment where things could really take off, but I, there's also a bit of a risk here in terms of making the jump from being what I call a grassroots recreational amateur game to being a full-time pro game where there are you know professional curlers who can come out of juniors and expect to have a 10 to 15 year paid career like in mm-hmm. other pro sports. And it's not really clear yet if there's money for that outside of Canada. So that's kind of an interesting interesting question right now i'm i'm not sure that there is but then again you know if this sport takes off in china you never know yeah you know if it takes off in china japan and korea and you bring in that influx of of money um who knows where who knows where things go yeah for sure as we transition into our professor havercroft segment uh focusing on club curling you know, there's, there's a big influx of people coming to clubs, our club included, um, and they're coming in uh, basically with just the clothes off their backs. Uh, but if you start getting into this game, what, what does a club curler actually need to buy? Uh, you know, what, what equipment, uh, you know, there's, there's, especially now that the season's over, there's lots of sales to take advantage of. I certainly did. Uh, what, what do club curlers actually need to, to get by? So, I mean, basically, it's, it's like the, what you need is actually really minimal, right? I, mm-hmm. I would say to start off, I say st- start off with just actually an old school slider. Uh, and I actually, That's what I, I did. Yeah, and I actually think the step on, the Balance Plus has got a really good step on slider that you don't even need to kind of wrap around your shoe. Because I think the messing around with the elastic band mm-hmm. slipping over your shoe is uh, time consuming, slows the game down, and actually step on, step off really cheap investment and I think they're safer too they're definitely safer for beginner curlers and one of the things that really matters is slider speed and until your balance is solid um, mm-hmm. going out like I, I curl with like stainless steel uh, sliding surface right but if you put a newbie curler on that uh, bad it's things bad right so so my advice is just start with like a step on slider it's not much of an outlay and then get make sure you have a good pair of, of sneakers or trainers, right? That are just good quality and decent grip on the ice. And if the, the soles are a bit slippery, then maybe 
get a gripper or two for your shoes when you're sweeping. And then in terms of a broom, I just think the old school performance brush, like the, you can get a light handle if you want, but just the classic performance brush is probably the way to go. And those aren't, I'm not sure what the price of those is these days. They're probably in the 50 to $60 range, right? So Yeah. Uh, like the, the broom that I started with, so when I started, I had the, you know, the slip-on slider uh, in our club has plenty of step-on sliders, so we tell people, you know, you don't need to buy shoes until you're, you know, a couple years into this and really have decided, you know, I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. Um, the first, and we tell people, you know, after about, after a year, you probably need to get your own broom and stop using club brooms. Uh, the broom I started with was that old tournament icebreaker, and you can get that for about $54 US, uh, and then shipping on top of that. But you can actually get, um, Goldline has this new one called the Air, which is a lot cheaper, um, and has one of the performance heads on it. You can get one of those for about the same price. Um, That's good. It's, yeah. Yeah. So there's so there's a lot better options even now than when I started after the 2010 Olympics because the, the the technology is getting insane, um, and the costs are coming down. Yeah, and then um, what? So really, yeah. So if you're getting started, you no, know, the most you need to spend is fifty five dollars on a serviceable broom that you can use um, that you can use for a few years. Uh, maybe you know, maybe get a few. Uh, brush heads to change out those are about 20 bucks so you know after after a couple of years of that then look at getting you know going 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 a step further with your equipment yeah so yeah i definitely think that I, I, you you're what's your clubs or what's it like in the u.s right now with um like the wcf approved pads they're not enforcing that at all at club level are they I don't think they're enforcing it at club level anywhere, like even up in Canada. Like so, yeah. this weekend, this weekend was my first uh, time using my brand new Hardline Ice Pad, yeah. uh, which was completely different than any other broom I've ever used. Because uh, I got the non-WCF approved cheater uh, cheater broom. So you got the full on um, kind of regular. You, you didn't even get like the Maxim fabric. You got the original classic fabric. Well, the maximum the maximum fabric is that WCF approved fabric that wears down really easy. Yeah. Um, this you know this brush head will probably last a couple of years before I'll have to buy a new one. Um, yeah. So that's so in the long run that's going to save me money because I'm not going to have to spend money on it. Now I did pay twice as much as I paid for my previous broom six years ago, um, but yeah, just the the comparison on weight. Uh, and the comparison on how easy it is to sweep this broom is kind of insane. But I, you know, it took me eight years before I decided that I'm curling enough to, to go ahead and make the switch. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've, well, actually my hardline broom, I broke it this year. So that was kind of a funny <laughs> episode, but, but props. To what did you do? I, it just snapped in half and actually and I was at playing in a bond spiel in Latvia and it, I was just in the house. I was vicing in the house and sweeping a rock bottom of the T-line. And it, it literally, I literally did three strokes and it just cracked in half. Um, <laughs> and, and that that does happen on occasion. Like I've seen that happen to some other people on occasion. Just sometimes the broom breaks. But like props to Hardline. I just emailed them and 
within 24 hours got like an email back from their distributor in Europe and he was like I have no yeah no problem we'll get you a new a new brush handle oh nice right away so and it's so it does have the lifetime guarantee but yeah I think the, the light it's a really light broom and uh, you know definitely makes sweeping easier uh, but yeah it's, it's basically the cost thing versus the cost versus like how much you want to outlay Right? So I, mean, I, I assume sliders are still – I haven't bought a slider in like 15 years. So I haven't either. I mean our, our club has like 20 of them. So yeah. It, yeah, most clubs will have step-on sliders that you can use. Yeah, so it's probably – I'm guessing around 20 bucks and say 60 for yeah. a, a, a beginner, what I'd call a beginner broom. With, and, yeah. and then the one thing I would say is try to invest in a good – brush pad like like one of the waterproof ones i don't i'm not sure mm -hmm. since i basically m most of the events i plan actually do require the wcf pads and that actually has put a serious like spike in curling costs these days cause it's yeah because like, they're expensive and they last you get like i a, get three the, games yeah, you get like three games and yeah. then you've got then you have to use and then you have to get a new yeah. one because they're you know part of you know part part of the change is to keep sweepers from having as much of an effect so when you do that you know it's going to wear down quicker um, yeah so if yeah. you're if you're a club curler you do not need the wcf approved um brush head in fact i would i would campaign that you not even look at those uh yeah. you know, unless you're an event that says the required required yeah. and there's a bit of a weird um so i basically always travel now with my hard line and I, I have both the kind of stand. It's not a fresh cheater one. Like basically, the the carving effect burns out after you know a few matches at most. Mm -hmm. Like when they, when the hyper carving was going on, some of the teams were swapping out after two or three times sweeping a stone. So yeah, um, most of the effect wears out pretty quickly. So I basically have a broken in hard line. So I'm not doing like mega carving with it. And then. Um, I just kind of see what's going on there. So some some events are really strict, like Latvia, because that was a CC like a, cha a challenger tour, so kind of like a low tier oh, okay. WCT event, and they had umps. So there they were like, yeah, no, you got to have WCF. And we take a look after the game. So you know, and play downs, we got to do that. But in Scotland, the the Scottish curling tour is kind of fifty fifty. Uh, hmm. Some teams actually like make a recarve there. Uh, <laughs> Which is a bit amusing. <laughs> so, to, which is a bit annoying and amusing, but whatever. You, what, what are you gonna do, kind of thing? They're not. They, they decide not to enforce at that level. So, I, I I've would only been say... to. I've only been to one event that I ever needed the. You know, this was before. Well, this was even before the WCF. But basically, they had a list of banned brush heads, and I've only been to one event that they were checking for banned brush heads. Is that Arena um, Nats, or? That was Arena Nationals yeah. in Westchester, Pennsylvania, lat two years ago. And so that was like yeah. the year of the brush where everyone's getting paranoid and going crazy, right? So, yes, yeah. it was. Yeah, so, so so to me, like I think the old, the, the Norway pad or the EQ pad, both mm -hmm. of which are kind of banned competitively, but are actually good brushes not just for the carving effect but they're both waterproof right that's the yeah and that's the main thing if you're in a or if you're in a regular club and you're just getting started or especially if you are just getting started in this sport and you're in an arena club yeah uh you need the waterproof material yeah um you know the cloth pads the wcf approved pads 
they're going to get soaked dealing yeah. with all of the frost that you have to deal with on an, at an arena curling club. So definitely look for the Norway pad, the airway pad, the hardline ice pad. Um, make sure that it's waterproof material. And when you, when you sweep in an arena club with one of those and then you look at your broom, you're going to see just a massive amount of frost and it's not going to soak in. It's not going to, you know, wade one. Uh, it's not going to help ruin that brush head. Yeah. And two, um, it's, you know, eventually as, as a, you know, water, so water and frost soaks into one of those, it's going to weigh down your broom too, right? Yeah. And so to me, like the, wa the, the waterproof materials were the best. And, I, and actually the original hard line pad, the, the one bonus feature it had. And so is that uh, you can take off the pad and wash it. Yeah. So. Yeah. All you need. Yeah. The, the, the hard line broom that I just bought in order to clean it, basically I need glass top stove cleaner. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I'm supposed to use to, to clean it, which is kind of cool. Yeah, no. So it's a good, it's a good substance to use. It's a good kind of last, right? So mm -hmm. I think one of those pads is worth it. And if you're playing, if you're playing once a week in an arena club, like you're just doing 10, 10 games a season right now. Right. So yeah, I, I say those pads probably last 30, 40 games easy. Like just like without, like without even like a, a significant deterioration in use and you know, there's some people who use those brushes for years. They get a bit nasty, personally. I think you should swap it out a bit. But you could definitely easily get a couple of seasons of use at Arena Club, or if you're playing once or twice a week at a kind of dedicated facility, easily a season out of one of those. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's only 20 30 bucks to replace one of those pads. It's not a huge outlay. And the uh, WCF pads are actually more expensive than the waterproof, quote-unquote, cheater pads. Yeah, and it's, a, it's not to be... Um, not not to kind of bang on that broom again, like the curling bubble again, but if you're on a sponsored team, that's all covered. And if you're kind of, you know, what I call competitive but not elite, which is where I kind of slot mm -hmm. myself in, that's actually a serious extra outlay for those teams too, right? That, uh, yeah. yeah like I, the, hard, I the hard line, the, the hard line, it's 25 for one of those. And how many games are you getting out of a WCF approved hard line pad? We, so it depends what we're playing. And if I'm playing in like a cash spiel, I swap it out every three. When we were doing play downs, it was two to one. Like two games, it was an important game. We'd yeah. swap right away. And uh, and that's 25 bucks a pop right there. Yeah. And, yeah, no, we dropped, so what's your... uh, we dropped 250 pounds on brush pads this year. Wow. <laughs> so just me, and, just me and my front end partner. We just kind of, we, we bought a 12 pack. <laughs> there you go. So How much is that American? Uh... About well, it's actually actually it's got a bit better, but like over three hundred bucks, yeah, like three fifty, right? Yeah, it's not it's not trivial. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing, right? But for for beginner curlers, you don't need, really need to worry about that. I think the other thing is so like with shoes and sliding surface, that I think you've got to progress um, carefully. I think I, I think that some people go out and they buy like the when we were starting the Oklahoma Curling Club, I remember, well, Trey actually went out and dropped like 300 bucks right away for yes. curling shoes, right? And he never slid before. Big spender. And he went and got like top-end Asham slams or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, and uh, it, it's not like, you know, like in golf, fine, you buy the best club, you buy the best golf shoes, whatever. It's, it's you know, uh, it might help your game a bit. It's probably more for show. But the problem in curling is with the sliding shoe, 
until you've got the, the basic balance and sliding mechanics down, you don't want to be on too fast a sliding surface, right? And so, mm -hmm. uh, like, like basically that's why I'm like, do the step on slider for a season, see how you're doing with that, and then look at buying a shoe. A lot of the brands um, offer kind of, you can like swap out the sliding thing. So Ashton does it, Goldline does it. Uh, we can just kind of swap out the, the sliding surface of the shoe. And so in some ways the shoe can outlast the, the slider, you can swap it out. Uh, ideally you, you want then to get Then you can advance to, you know, a thicker, a yeah. thicker Teflon. Yeah, thicker Teflon. Basically, you know, the the standard I'd say is quarter inch is kind of like when you mm -hmm. you got a pretty good stable slide and when you can handle that. But that's a pretty fast surface there. And there's there's more specialized stuff. There's I use the steel for the Asham rotator. Um, there's also kind of some weird NASA fabric ring that Asham puts out. <laughs> They're just all like it's basically how hard it is, how scratch resistant it is, and how fast it is. Right. So. Goldline does some kind of steel little pods now in their shoes too, uh, and I and I don't recommend those. Goldline makes some good shoes, but I don't recommend the ones that have the little, um, the ones that look like golf shoes. Oh, with are the they little, just not? With, uh, have you tried them at all? Or no, but I've seen people who curl in them, and the little discs will pop out. Yeah, yeah. So it could, it's it a lot easier. Be, it's a lot easier to lose those um, than it is to the ones that are either you know full foot slider or the two the two main discs yeah like yeah, I, so cur I had i had gold lines for years until i recently switched but yeah they were fine curling shoes but the new, the brand new ones that they make um i haven't seen good reviews on oh, okay yeah and then if you want to do kind of next level when you want to get bougie like me you can go buy i just went and bought some custom-made shoes so i found a guy in the twin oh, yeah. cities and I'm, i haven't tried them yet just because my curling schedule has been weird but because i'm going to be at the rink this week this will be my first time to, to break them in and so this kind of like a lot of clubs around north america definitely have started to see these kind of mom and pop operations where someone there kind of knows enough about you know how to do shoes and how to install uh install sliders on shoes properly that there's a lot of these custom companies popping up right so I think the first guy I recall doing it was Johnny Mo. He did those kind of green shoes oh, yeah. maybe six, eight years ago. And then uh, the Jacobs team, I think pretty soon after that, they went with like modified Nike Metcons. And kind of more and more teams now, uh, kind of the, the elite level, you see them going to these custom-made shoes. Part of it's a fashion statement, but part of it, to be honest, is the fact that most curling shoes are kind of – the shoe part of the curling shoe isn't that great to be frank, right? They're kind of not great dress shoes slapped with Teflon <laughs> underneath, uh, right? Some of them are fine. Some of them are some of them are better than others. How about that? Yeah, some of them are better than others, but I think that I think some of the theory behind them going like so the reason why I like uh, so the reason um, the Jacobs team went with the Nike Metcons is the the Nike Metcons actually a CrossFit shoe and. CrossFit shoes are designed to do a bunch of things, but you're basically supposed to be able to do stuff like lift really heavy barbell weights and then jump up and down and then kind of run around the block and do a bunch of crazy exercises. So it's a, it's a well-designed, durable shoe, and it's got what's called a low drop. So it's got like a very, basically it's four millimeters from the heel to the, 
where the ground is. And that's actually really good for weight transfer when you're pushing off the hack. And it's also really good for lateral sidestepping, right? So it's, it's actually, they put a lot of research and thinking into that. And so when they started kind of using those kinds of shoes, it's actually a shoe that's designed for all the athletic movements of curling. And I, I think, to be honest, some of the other curling shoes, you know, aren't necessarily, they're very good sliding shoes perhaps, but they aren't necessarily designed for, especially if you're kind of doing a lot of the more athletic up on your toes, sweeping, lateral stepping and all that kind of stuff, um, perhaps not the best. So I think part of the theory behind the custom shoes is that, and that then is a matter of kind of finding someone who can do the whole whole shebang. And it, part of it is also fashion. You just find a, find a pair of shoes you like and uh, go with it. Got to go full John Michelle Menard and get the Converse Thunderbolts and turn those into curling shoes. Yeah, I mean, actually, in some ways, the old school shoes are better for conversion because you talk to the guys who do it, and the ideal is a flat shoe, flat sole, mm-hmm. right? And so some of the old school, uh, the old school Adidas, old, old school Converse basketball shoes, they had flat, flat soles, and so that's actually really easy to glue, glue a good slider and gripper onto. So. Uh, Sometimes the older style is actually a little bit better too. Uh, like the older, like the old style, kind of good, like old school Adidas or Converse. Nice. Yeah. So it's part. It's part fashion, but part also kind of makes sense too. But it, again, that's you're paying for the cost of the shoe, and then it's about 150 to 200 bucks depending on who you find to to do the full install, which is you know gripper gripper sole on the on the gripper foot the slider install and then the toe dip, which you probably need if you're converting some kind of um, oh, non-curling yeah, shoe because they'll tend to have a, a, a draggier fabric on the upper compared to even your kind of standard leather curling shoe. So Yeah, I got a toe dip on the new ones I bought and the difference in sliding is insane because like, if I come out of the hack too hard and I go to try to slow myself down, it's a lot more difficult to hit the brakes uh, now, that I, now that I've got the, the toe dip. Yeah, no, a toe dip does wonders right it's just it takes away a lot of the drag and you'd be amazed that not not just like putting on the difficulty putting on the brakes but actually how much smoother you slide how that affects what your draw weight feels like but once you adjust to the toe dip uh i think it kind of makes for a lot smoother delivery too so i've either always had a toe dip or where when i found myself in places like oklahoma or england where your nearby toe dip guy is not easily accessible uh, the other solution is just to slap on some tape. Uh, duct tape yeah. works all right. Electrical tape works even better. But just something to kind of speed up the the trail foot, kind of reduce a bit of drag there. All right. What else? What else does a a new is that? That's pretty much all a new curler needs, right? But what else um, down the road? What else? What else would they need other than? I mean, I'd say curling, curling, pants, yeah, right? curling pants. Yeah. I mean, pants in, in England means underpants, so. Oh, I was unaware of this. <laughs> my That's favorite, good to know if I'm ever out there. My favorite cross-cultural kind of blunder moment is with Alice. We were in a store at Marks & Spencer, which is like a standard English department store. And Alice was kind of saying, you know, I think the men's pants fit me a lot better. And she puts that out really loud, and a bunch of people look up and take a, take a look at her. <laughs> So I was like, Alice, that means underpants here. She's like, oh. <laughs> so pants or trousers, depending on what side of the pond you're on. Um, 
you know, like all of the major curling brands make them, uh, make kind of stretchy style, and it kind of depends on your preference. I also think that you don't need to get curling, curling pants anymore. That I think, uh, yeah. like, especially the, the ladies or the women now are seem to be going for more yoga pants style. So, like, Lululemon yeah, or so some it's, of the yoga it's a lot brands. easier. You don't have to go to, um, you know, if you're are, also if you are getting started in this sport, eventually you will buy curling equipment from Debbie McCormick, um, and that's yeah. you know that's what I that's how I got my first fir- broom and first pair of, of curling pants. But yeah, you don't need to go out and and buy specific curling pants, especially on the women's side, because like any pair of yoga pants is going to work. Um, on the men's side, you know, more so like golf pants, I guess. Yeah. Although having worn both golf pants and curling pants um the curling the spe- the curling specific ones work better kind of I, guess, I think it depends i think um yeah no so one of the juniors i coach he he went from curling pants to golf pants and he swears by the golf pants yeah everyone well so. everyone's buying the john daly brand loudmouth pants now too right well he went and just got like standard nike ones but i guess that he said they had he thought they were a bit more stretchy every direction for what he thought the fabric was better basically is what he said which which again like like the curling brands are good but they're a lot they're kind of small operations there's not that much curling turnover and obviously a big apparel maker has got access to a lot more different fabric choices right so yep Part of this is kind of playing around. I think basically the one thing you don't want to do is wear jeans, especially if you're a guy. That that kind of yeah. you get the kind of riding up on your crotch if you're <laughs> stretching. Jeans are not flexible at all, but like any kind of flexible flexible yeah, pant. I mean, and there's lots of styles going on. So it, back in the day, before the John Daly loudmouth breakthrough, Zubaz. Remember? Do you remember Zubaz? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the '90s, there were a lot of middle-aged dudes wearing Zubaz around the Montreal West Curling Club. Oh, man. <laughs> it was not a great look. <laughs> anyway. No, bring that back. We need <laughs> more. You're going to get retro. <laughs> we'll bring back a retro Zubaz. And the next time Trey's Amigos rolls, they'll roll out in Zubaz. All right. That's, uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm Honestly, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think obviously pants and then gloves. I think it's the other big, uh, big outlay. And I guess it depends – Wide receiver gloves from Dick's Sporting Goods or any sporting goods store. If you get wide receiver gloves, they work great. Oh, I didn't know that trick. Yeah, because they're well, because they're made to be they're made to be grippy. Yeah, that's the key. I I normally get my go-to one for that is the Balance Plus gloves. I kind of like them. Uh, If you want like a curling specific brand, they see. I think they kind of make the best quality, but. I, I tend to tear through a pair of gloves in a season, if not less. Just uh, I think that kind of depends, you know, how hard you grip in the broom when you sweep, kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I for me like I, you know so yeah to me that's actually my biggest. Every single season I've got to go buy a pair of gloves during the off season, basically. But that, that depends. Right? And I've gone through. I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've ever had to buy a new pair. Ah, you're not sweeping hard enough. That's the. Oh. <laughs> you're just buying. You're just buying trash gloves. <laughs> go get a no. pair of Nike wide receiver gloves. Man. All right, we'll see. We'll see. I've never had. I've never had a pair of gloves when I've been playing in a sweeping position. I've never had a pair of gloves last uh, more than a season. Um, get the get the pair that they give to the the OU wide receivers where you can put it together and form the OU. 
go get a pair of those off of off of the Nike website or East Bay or something like that and use those. All right, I'll, then I'll... make a bit make a big shot and throw up the OU. <laughs> it's hard to get in uh, the UK. <laughs> you can order them online. You gotta you gotta pay duty. <laughs> it's like a thirty percent tax if you even import anything from North America. I did not. Oh, what man? Yeah, I did not, I did not have to do that. Uh, getting my broom from Canada. Uh, no, so NAFTA. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, get your broom before uh, Trump tears up NAFTA. Uh, we may we may edit out the uh, the political. Uh, I had to I had to load up on Levi's when I was in uh, San Francisco. Oh yeah. Oh, they were, like I way guess. cheaper. It was like it was like forty percent price. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Anyway, the other, the other thing that's funny is Carhartt. Is Carhartt now like a like a luxury brand in the U.S.? They're trying to become one. Yes, it's like amazing. In Europe, it's... Growing up, yeah, being in Oklahoma, and you know, Carhartt was not associated with fashion. Um, now, maybe if you owned a farm, but not uh, you weren't. You know, kids who have never seen a cow are wearing Carhartt now, which is kind of ridiculous to me. Yeah, no. So Carhartt in Europe is like really expensive. Like minimum 150 pounds for every pair of Carhartt jeans. So. Is this the reverse Stella Artois story yeah. where Stella came into the U.S. and only put its beer in like high-end bars? Did Carhartt go into the U.K. and just Did, start putting their stuff in high-end stores? All right, not just the U.K. I was in Milan visiting a friend there, and that's like fashion capital of the world. And there was a Carhartt store, and it was like super – like right next to Dolce & Gabbana and like all the high-end Italian brands. And like – super expensive like i was like what is going on yeah well there are a lot of kids from my high school in oklahoma that i guess would be fashion icons in italy then they should they should uh, maybe our business should be getting them to sell their used car harps to us to italian fashionistas there you go take yeah. take some of those people to a oklahoma state football game when it's cold and See what see what they say about about the apparel that's being worn. Why are you right. wearing such high end fashion for <laughs> this cold weather football game? Exactly. Yeah. All right. So I guess uh, so. You're actually starting your season. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I'm wrapping it up this week. So maybe we'll maybe we'll check in. I don't know. A week, a week to ten days time, and just see what's kind of going on. I can report on the end of the English curling season. The only kind of international thing we got going on right now is uh, seniors mix and mixed doubles is going on. Yep. Yeah, mixed doubles is going on now too, and then and that's always interesting to see what non-traditional countries um, you know make noise in that tournament because there's always one or two. It's usually like Hungary or Latvia, right? Um, Hungary throws resources at it, so uh, I know the English cool. teams. English teams in their pool. I know England's got off to an zero and two start last I checked, and they played Hungary right out of the gate. Uh, but Hungary definitely, um, they, they, they've got a couple of good mixed doubles teams there. They host mixed doubles tournaments, so not a surprise. And it actually is. I'd say in Europe, it's catching on way more with the non-traditional curling powers. So like your Hungarys. Latvia, like you mentioned, some of the mm -hmm. like uh, uh, even a little bit the Netherlands, uh, like there's nothing going on mixed doubles wise in Scotland. Like there's not re there's one or two bond spiels, but it's not really a thing. Like really the there's I'd say there's basically two or three serious mixed doubles teams there. England's got I'd say one like the Fowler brother sister team. They're kind of the one serious 
uh, mixed doubles team, although Ben Fowler took the, the year off mixed doubles to finish up university, but Anna is still, still playing in that. But there's not, it's just, it, it hasn't really caught on yet um, outside of kind of, I'd say, central and eastern Europe. Oddly. Well, I don't know. I don't know when we'll be able to to recap those. I'm getting ready to go to Disney World for for a week. Oh yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe one of those mornings uh, I can get up before Aaron does and do a podcast. Although I have a feeling requesting to podcast while on a Disney vacation may not be the smartest ask for for me. You could um. <laughs> you could get Mickey as uh, our first guest. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> he won't so, have a lot to say. That's true. Yeah. Because they, they got rid of the talking Mickey Mouse. From oh, did they? The, from the meet and greets. Yeah, they had. So uh. the talking Mickey was really weird. Um, so they had, obviously they had someone in some room, like, controlling the things that he said. But it was really weird, especially when you were drunk, uh, to meet the talking Mickey Mouse. Uh, but I guess that weirded out too many people. So now they've gone back to the silent Mickey Mouse when you do the character meet and greets there at Disney World. So you're going to Disney World. So you're going to Florida. Yeah, we're going. Yeah, we're driving to Florida. We're uh, going to be down there. We're leaving. Um, we're leaving Friday night, and we're coming back the next Sunday. So we're going down to a. We're spending. We're spending the week at a at a timeshare, uh, and then doing Epcot, Animal Kingdom. And then the new uh, the new water park that Universal has called Volcano Bay. I haven't been there since like eighty eight or eighty nine, and I remember even then the Epcot Center looked a bit like dated. How's it? Have they updated it so, since like the? So this is so the update they're doing to Epcot is kind of controversial because you have people like me and probably you who grew up with the weird version of Epcot with all the crazy. You know, the, the you know the crazy animatronics that weren't intellectual property of Disney, and they're kind of phasing those out. Like Horizons has been gone for years, um, and they're putting in Disney intellectual property. Like they're putting in a Gardens of the Galaxy ride. They replaced uh. Maelstrom with a Frozen ride. Um, so you know, the, the the people like me are really hesitant as to how the renovations to Epcot are going to go because I grew up going to see you know the the edutainment rides like Spaceship Earth and Horizons and then do the around the world deal um it's also awesome because we're going to be at Epcot during their Flower and Garden Festival which is also a huge food festival that they do and uh there's a bunch of poutine carts that are going to be there the poutine at Epcot oh so here's the thing, Jonathan. Since you <laughs> since you left the states, poutine has become a thing. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's become like a a specialty meal or a specialty appetizer that a lot of you know upscale bars are producing. And yeah, there's poutine all over Disney World. Wow. Uh, you go to Epcot. You go to the Canada Pavilion there at Epcot. Uh, Disney Springs, which used to be called Downtown Disney, now has a specific, um, a specific food truck that called the Daily Poutine that just does different versions of poutine. Uh, so I'm kind of excited to go and eat a lot of French fries covered in gravy uh, next the week. It's going to be great. Cheese and curds. cheese curds. Yeah, yeah don't forget the, the cheese curds. Part. Yeah. 
Yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, that sounds like fun. Are they, do they still have that? The one thing that's stuck in my mind, which is so dated, it's got to be gone, but it's an animatronic house, and you move through each room, and you move from, like, the 20s to the 50s oh, to no, the that's 60s still... to the 80s. But it caps so at... out. No, that's like, at Magic. That's at Magic Kingdom. That's a Walt ah. Disney original, the Carousel of Progress. No, that's a classic. Okay. They can never touch that ride. And so, but it still like craps out in the nineteen eighties, or they added like. Yeah, uh, I think they just say. I think they just changed the animatronic to where they're saying that they're in the nineties, even though they're clearly still in the eighties. Or no, it's okay. like no, they do like a future. It's like a future version of ah. what we think. You know what we think technology is going to be, you know, 30 years from now with like flying cars and okay. stuff. And it, where, where's uh, but the, no, the but no, the carousel is that there too. Uh, yes. Hall of president. That's also at magic kingdom. We're not going to magic ah. kingdom this trip. Um, ah. we're only doing two park days at Disney. Uh, so yeah, hall of presidents is at, uh, magic ah. kingdom, which now has, uh, president Trump, uh, and so that was interesting. Uh, if you look at the, I think mine tapped out I've, at Reagan. Go. <laughs> that's that's how right. Old you, I am. you were there. You were there during Reagan. That's fantastic. Uh, go, go and Google the President Trump animatronic that they put in the Hall of Presidents and look at it and tell me that Disney wasn't sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win and then repurposed their animatronic into a Trump. Oh. Oh, interesting. Because it looks <laughs> – it's amazing. Oh, wow. So that's there. The Carousel of Progress is still at Tomorrowland at Magic Kingdom. But that's – they can't touch that one because that's like the one ride at Disney World that Walt Disney himself designed because it went to – it was originally in Disneyland and they moved it. Which one? The Carousel of Progress. Because ah, that was the okay. – because he built that – he built that for a World's Fair and then they put it in land, and then they moved it to world. So the Carousel of Progress is like the one thing at Disney World that Walt had his hands in, because uh. Walt died before Disney World was built. You know, they were they were still buying up land in Central Florida for Disney World when Walt died. Yeah. Ah, crazy. All right. Well, I hope so. You now that we've lost there. all, yeah. so now that we've lost all of our listeners, uh, oh. except for the ones who like poutine, which hopefully is, <laughs> which could be a lot of them. Since That's a good. I'm sure the Venn diagram of poutine and curling overlaps quite well. Uh, yes. So that's. But yeah, now that we've lost all of our listeners, uh, I guess we will talk to everyone uh, next time around as we recap the finally the the curling season that will never end. Uh, finally, comes to an end here uh, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and also the end of the quad. So I guess maybe we'll like maybe in you know, ten days to two weeks' time we'll sit down and do a, a wrap up. What does it all mean? Yeah, and we should go over. Yeah, we'll go over team changes now that we'll finally know all the new teams. Now that we know which teams are because we were kind of waiting for because Team Homan was the one that are they are they going to stay together or not? That was the one I think that we were waiting on, and now that that domino did not fall, uh, I think. Uh, I think everything's kind of calmed down now with the silly season. Yeah, I think like for the top shelf teams, definitely. I think there's still always a couple of like things coming through, but yeah, the the, the top your top twenty teams in both men's and women's is pretty much set. I'd say for yeah. for uh, at least next season. I, I think I think historically, first year of the quads a tryout year. So yeah, it'll be so curious to see, see who gets the act. So you know, a team like Holman. We can kind of use this as a bit of a teaser for next time, but a team like Holman, it could be that it's kind of one more year, but if they keep having their struggles, uh, 
That might be some not... place that a change might happen. Yeah, but you're not going to see him like blow it up. You'll see him like trade out one player or so. Eh, you never know. After Ch- next trading year. out one player can be a big shakeup, right? Like when Johnny Moe yeah. met left Martin, that that shook yeah. stuff up pretty big time. So right. we'll see. Anyway, I'll see more to ya. talk more to talk about next time. Yeah, sounds good. See you soon. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a review. You can get a hold of us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. You can drop us a line at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Ideas for future shows, questions, uh, questions, comments, complaints, uh, anything you want to throw our way. Uh, But, yeah, thank you so much for listening to the show. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Goodbye. Right on.